Welcome to the C3 Coffs Harbour podcast. Today's message is a recording from our online service. To join our online church community, visit c3ch.online.church and you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Enjoy the message. Well, welcome everybody to our eighth week of this series, Above All Else. And if you just happen to be tuning in for the first time uh, in this series, uh, we're looking at um, the proverb, chapter 4, verse 23, which says, Above all else, guard your heart, for from your heart flow all the issues of life. And uh, it's quite a serious and a significant um, passage in Proverbs that uh, that we really should draw our, draw our attention to, and that this this thought of above or else, this this thought of prioritizing, guarding our heart. And so for me, I just picture this, you know, like a bouncer standing at the door and and letting in people who are acceptable and pushing out people who aren't. And so for us, we have to, above all else, make sure that we are that bouncer of our heart to uh, guard what comes in, because what comes in ultimately is what's going to flow out. And so we're using Richard Foster's book, A Celebration of Discipline, to look at 12... um, you know, proven disciplines of the faith that are really going to help us to guard our heart um, by putting things in place that will protect us from allowing good things in so that good things can flow out. And so we've looked at a bunch of different things over the last few weeks. Uh, We looked at um, meditation. We've looked at prayer. We've looked at study. We've looked at uh, fasting. Uh, Anna did a great message a couple of weeks ago on simplicity and living that uh, simple life um, where we actually live a life that says, um, you know, God's kingdom is first, that whole thought of seek first the kingdom of God. And then last week we looked at uh, silence and solitude. And I must say, we got, um, I got a lot of great feedback about that chapter. It, it definitely um, felt like that there, there is a, a, an itch that needs to be scratched in that area of so many people's lives, this thought of just having silence. I think our our lives can be filled with so much noise, so much distraction, so much stimulation um, that we are just constantly go, 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 go. And we, we find ourselves overwhelmed and swimming in, a, in an ocean of busyness when God is calling us to be silent, to, to strengthen us. And, and for me, one of the things I loved about that chapter is um, how, how he likened silence to an anesthetic that slows us down for God to do the work that he can do. And I remember just a, a few weeks ago, my mom, morning mom, how are you, um, had a, a hip operation, had a hip replacement major surgery and as I'm studying through this chapter I just was thinking about her and and she's gone to the hospital and and to to see a surgeon to have a a surgery take place so that she will get better and in order for her to have that she needs to lay down on the bed have the anesthetic so she can be still and silent for the surgeon to do his work now if she's running around the, the surgical ward or the hospital fixing this looking at that doing this asking questions over here talking to that person over there um, the surgeon's going to be at a loss to go well I can't really help you because you're just bouncing around I need you to be still in order for me to do the work that needs to be done in you for you to get better and that picture is is similar to us that we find ourselves living such fast paced lives where the the still small voice of the Holy Spirit is waiting for us to be still and silent so the transformative work of God can come through our lives and heal us and bring us deliverance and bring us freedom. And so we we put the, 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 the homework out there, the ponder practice for us to 
find and reclaim those small moments. Now, we could, we could look at it on a big scale and go, oh, maybe I need to go and hire a cabin in the woods and just be silent for a weekend and have a retreat. And that might be great, but that's not practical for us to do today. And so we looked at what are some small things we can do today to reclaim those moments of silence and solitude. And, and whether it's just you know, that, those opening moments of the day where we, we awake from sleep and we just thank God in the stillness of the the new day or or right before bed we just slip outside and look at the night sky and just appreciate even just for a second the beauty of God in the silence and stillness of nighttime or maybe it's you see a tree or a sunrise or, or just the beauty of creation it's just stop being present in those moments and embracing silence and solitude and and like I said I've, I've had so much great feedback from that chapter and um, I would encourage you maybe go read it again reread that chapter on um, living a life of silence and solitude and bringing that discipline back into your life but today we will move into the next um, uh, discipline which is the discipline of submission and before you turn off I know people can get a little bit turned off by that particular word it's it's almost a swear word in today's culture and today's society um but but i, I want to acknowledge that I, I get that that this is probably the most difficult um discipline to talk about and for two reasons the first reason is because it really speaks to the core of of who we are it speaks to our our driving motivations it speaks to our desires it speaks to our selfishness who who, who we are at the very core of us submission challenges that part of our life and the second reason why it's challenging is because historically this particular discipline has been abused and mistreated and 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 has caused people much affliction and much damage when all these disciplines are designed by very nature and virtue to bring about freedom and because this discipline has been misused mistreated and people have been uh, abused in the process because people have this insatiable desire for power um, this idea of submission can be quite off-putting to people and i just want to say i get that and and today we're going to tread through this discipline very carefully very methodically and biblically to see the freedom that should come from this discipline that it's not about binding people up in submission and having them um, you know suppressed it's actually about releasing us into a life of freedom Um, nothing can put people into bondage like religion can right and nothing in religion has done more to manipulate people and downtread people than um, a, a deficient an insufficient teaching on submission. So we're going to try and correct that today. So what freedom comes from submission? And you're probably asking that question, all right, Justin, you're talking about submission. You're talking about the fruit of it being freedom. What does that look like? Um, Well, it it, it does sound paradoxical, um, but it's the, the ability to lay down that terrible burden that you and I all carry of needing to get our own way all the time that burden that we carry of making sure our preferences are met this is what submission is ultimately about is about releasing those things so that we can be inconvenienced so that we don't get upset when things don't go away we don't get upset when people don't uh, treat us the way we ought to be treated that we can live at a higher level because we have chosen to submit to um, what's happening around us and not worry too much about us getting what we think we deserve uh, it's about attacking, I guess, that spirit of entitlement that, that so often rises up inside of us. Um, 
there is so much freedom to be gained in realising that perhaps the things in life we worry about aren't as big a deal as we perhaps thought they were, that we can put so much emphasis on things that maybe aren't as major deals as we would like to think they are. Um, and so this, this discipline will help us just to hold lightly to things that we maybe have been holding onto too tightly for so long, we can then start to release those and let God flow through us um, more easily. Um, the biblical teaching on submission focuses primarily on the spirit of which we see people and the spirit with which we view other people in the outworking of our lives. Um, in 1 Peter 2 verse 18, for example, Peter gives this command that um, slaves ought to obey their masters. And at a cursory reading of that, you might go, oh, that's fair enough. But when you think about it, why would he need to write that? Why would he need to write slaves obey your masters? Just purely by the fact of who they were in the position of society, they should be doing that anyway. It's like putting in a job description, um, employees, you need to obey your boss. It just seems like a bit redundant. Why would he put that in there? Well, he would put that in there because outwardly we can do stuff for people. Outwardly we can um, obey people and inwardly we can hold a spirit of rebellion against them. So this, this, this notion and discipline of submission is talking to that, that spirit that's within us, that we can do things and we can comply and we can toe the line, but this addresses that, that inner um, view of rebellion that we can have or disdain or disconnect or whatever with, with people. Um, in, in submission, we are free to value people. Um, their dreams and their plans become important to us. Um, and, and that brings us a great sense of freedom. Um, we can rejoice in, in people's successes and feel genuine sorrow in their failures. And I remember um, my pastor, Pastor Sean Foster, who we took on for, from uh, seven years ago, used to teach us that um, a true gauge of the condition of your heart is if you can actually uh, rejoice in somebody else's success rather than being jealous of somebody succeeding. If you can genuinely rejoice with them, then you know your heart's in the right place. And likewise, if you can genuinely have sorrow in times of failure or times of despair with people rather than told you so or about time they got their just desserts. If we can keep our spirit sweet in those moments and, and the Bible talks about that, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. On. That's a key indicator in, in whether we are disciplined by this thing called submission and whether we have our hearts and our spirits in a sweet spot to, to, to be all God has called us to be as his disciples. Um, have you ever experienced that, that form of liberation that comes from giving up your rights, giving up your preferences, giving up your sense of entitlement? Have you ever encountered that spirit of freedom or liberation that comes from that? Um, it means you're set free from the bitterness and anger and resentment that can come with not getting what you want or not being treated the way you want to be treated. In fact, it means that you can more freely obey Jesus's command in Matthew 5.39, which says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When, when we are free from those things, then we can do the things that Jesus commands us to do. And he commands us to love our enemies. That's crazy. Like surely by definition, our enemy is someone we should hate. But Jesus flips it on its head and he said, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. Pray for them and bless them. That is so countercultural. That is so against the grain of how we see life. But this is the life of a disciple. To live countercultural, to live at a higher standard that's above just what the flesh desires, but it's about what the kingdom of God expects and requires of us. 
Um, the benchmark of understanding this biblical principle um, is found in Jesus' astonishing statement in um, Mark 8.34, where he says, If any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That's what it means to become a disciple, is to deny ourselves, deny our, our appetites, to deny our preferences, to deny our entitlements, and to take up our cross and to follow him. And if you're like me, when you read that and you hear that and you think about that at working in your everyday life, um, I just go, ouch, that, that hurts. That's like ripping off a Band-Aid and exposing an open wound. Um, see, we are, we are so much more comfortable with this notion of self-fulfillment or self-actualization more than we are with this sense of self-denial. But in the kingdom of God, it starts with self-denial. And when we, when we approach this thought of self-denial, that will actually lead us to a place of self-fulfillment and self-actualization. That's how it works. And, and the world will tell us to avoid self-denial, to get what is yours, to make sure that you get what you're entitled to at the cost of, of relationships or whatever. But Jesus says, no, 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 if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And so when we, when we approach this thing of self-denial, that leads us to a place of self-fulfillment and self-actualization where we discover who we are in Christ as his disciples. Um, self-denial is simply a way of coming to understand that we do not have to have things our own way. Our happiness is not dependent upon getting what we want, but we are totally happy and okay with being inconvenienced. Um, people avoid self-denial because um, they feel like to deny themselves or to be inconvenienced is to lose their identity. To let somebody else's preference be raised above our own, we can think that we, we then lose a sense of who we are. We lose our identity. But when we read through scriptures, that doesn't seem to be true. Like, did, did Jesus lose his identity by turning his face towards Golgotha? By, by, by denying himself and saying, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, and facing the cross, did he lose his identity? No. Did, did the disciples lose their identity by taking up Jesus' command to follow him? Certainly not. Did, did Daniel lose his identity by being enslaved in, 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 in captivity in Babylonia? In Babylon, no, 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 he didn't. In fact, the, the opposite is true, is that the, their identity was actually forged and brought to the surface in the process of self-denial that wasn't lost. And that's how the kingdom of God works. Um, self-denial means the freedom to give way to others. It means to hold others' interests above your own interests. And it frees us to respond to Jesus' teaching that says, whoever loses his life for my sake will actually find it. So we can now live as Jesus' disciples where we lose our life, we lose our preferences, we embrace self-denial, we embrace submission, we put up other people's opinions and other people's um, preferences above our own, and we live this life of losing it in order to find the true life that actually exists as a disciple and follower of Jesus. Um, I, I remember... Um, a bunch of years ago, I was asked to speak to a room full of Year 12 graduates who are about to go into the workforce or go into further study. And I was asked to um, give them a talk about, you know, I guess essentially a pep talk about what it is going into the workforce, what to expect and things like that. And I just taught them a very basic principle that, that I have learnt um, I wasn't taught this. This is something that's just developed in me over the years. And, and I don't say this to boast or brag because that's definitely not 
part of who I am and what I enjoy doing. That sort of stuff repulses me. But, but the reality is I, I have worked many jobs since leaving high school. I, I've worked for Coles for five years and did some stuff with them. I, uh, I've taught scripture in high schools for a bunch of years. I have worked in a, a conference and camping center. I have been a youth pastor. I've been a barista and I've been a, you know, just a few years ago, I used to clean doctor surgeries at night after hours for extra cash. And, um, but the, the interesting thing is in my working career, I have never once applied for a job. I have never once had to go through the application process or the interview process. Um, I've just been offered jobs my whole way through. And I'm telling you right now, it's not because I'm awesome. It's not because I'm the best worker. It's not because I'm the smartest person at all. I guarantee you that is not the reason. I honestly believe the reason is this principle that I taught this room full of year 12 graduates. And the principle is simply this. When you go into a workplace, usually you are given a job description. And that job description tells you who you are in the organization and the roles and responsibilities you have in the job that you've just been given. And if you fulfill those things, then you will get a paycheck at the end of the week. And that's how it works. And so what I've come to realize is that job description in everybody else's eyes is their primary focus in their job. If I can just do these tasks and tick those boxes, I get my pay, then I go about my life. But I've never ever in any job I've had seen my job description as my primary focus. My primary focus has always been to make my boss's job easier. And I will use that job description to help me do that. But my focus is always what, what weight is my boss carrying? What tasks is he doing? And what is it that I can do with my skill set and my role that will take the burden off him or her so that his job or her job is lighter and easier? And, and, and I have found that, that that is what will set people apart um, in the workplace. And here's why. Because if it comes time for promotion, who gets promoted? The guy that just ticks the boxes or the guy who is intentional about making his boss's job easier, lightening the burden of his boss? 10 times out of 10, it's going to be the guy that takes the weight, right? And the same comes with retrenchment. If there's a bunch of jobs that need to be axed, whose job is more likely to be safe? The guy that just does what he's required or the one who takes the weight off his boss? So for me, that has always been my work ethic and my my. MO. And so for me, uh, in a pastor context, of course, I've got my job description, which is to lead our church, make disciples. But ultimately, um, that's secondary. For me, my primary focus is to make sure that um, Phil Pringle's job is easier and my oversight, Eric Harrison, and, and those who I report to above the, the chain of command is easier by making sure that, that this church is healthy, that people are looked after so that they don't have to worry too much about C3 Coffs Harbor, that they can set their attentions to other things that... Um, you know, and know that this is going to be okay. And by the way, I don't do that to get some sort of promotion in C3. That's just my, um, how I view things. And it comes down to that sense of submission, that sense of surrendering my will to do what God would have me do, putting other people's preferences above my own. And I've never, like I said, I've never applied for a job and I've only ever found the blessing of God by taking that path. And it is not the path that is easiest. It is the path of most resistance. Um, but ultimately, it is the most fruitful, in my experience, way of living. And it's, it's about this sense of discipline and submission. So we're going to look at three things right now. We're going to look at um, what Jesus teaches about submission, what the epistles teach about, uh, about um, uh, submission, and some of the, um, what have I got here, the limits of s- submission. Here we go. So... 
The most radical and countercultural teaching that Jesus had was in total reversal to what we would understand as a contemporary notion of greatness. Um, according to Jesus, um, uh, leadership is found in becoming a servant of all. There is power in submission. And Jesus gives a great, his whole life is this perfect um, example of servant leadership. Now, I've read many different theories on leadership and many different um, styles of leadership, um, but, but by far and large, the, the most effective form of leadership in any organization is servant leadership. And, and not leadership where people just get out in front and dictate, you do this, you do this, you do this, but where a leader will stand in the line with their people and say, hey, come on, we will do this, together we will do this, and they lead by example. And it's this servant leadership that Jesus demonstrates. Philippians 2 verse 8, 18 says, oh sorry, verse 8 says, He humbled himself and became obedient even to death. And this is what Jesus did. He humbled himself even to the point of death, laying down his life for the very people who probably should have served him, but he was serving them by being humbled and submissive to God. Um, Jesus not only um, died the cross death, he lived the cross life. Um, he lived the cross life in submission to all human beings. He, he was the servant of all, stating that the Son of Man, he did not come to be served, but to serve and live, give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus shattered the, the cultural customs of his day by living this cross life. Um, it's impossible to overstate this revolutionary um, character trait and, and teaching of Jesus um, because he, he did away with all claims to privilege. He did away with all claims to position, all claims to status, all claims to entitlement. The way Jesus lived and what he taught did away with all that stuff and paved the way for a brand new way of living, a life of submission which is so countercultural to what we think greatness looks like. And that's why Jesus says, you know, the greatest of all is actually the least of all. And the least of all is actually the greatest of all. Um, so the cross life really is um, a, a voluntary practicing of the discipline of submission. So that's a snapshot, and there's more in the book in, in this chapter about that. But uh, I want to now look at the epistles, and this is the, the, the teachings of the letters of the apostles. Um, the Apostle Paul um, uh, talks about counting others better than yourself in, in Philippians 2 verse 3 to 7 and continuing to say, that, to say that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. So Paul is affirming the fact that what we see that Jesus taught and did, Paul is saying, hey, this is what we're going to do too. Um, Peter writes, For this you have been called, that Christ who uh, suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his step. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. Uh, when he suffered, he did not threaten, uh, but he trusted in one who judges justly. And that's from 1 Peter 2, verse 21 to 23. And so um, we see this all throughout the epistles that, um, that Jesus sets the example. Paul, Peter give us um, uh, this, this encouragement to say, hey, you know what? We've got to follow Jesus. He set the tone. He set the pace. Let's follow his way. Um, perhaps the most perfect illustration of this revolutionary um, concept of subordination or that sounds really bad, but submission um, is Paul's letter to Philemon. 
And I love teaching on this particular letter. It's such a small little letter towards the back of the New Testament that you can really overlook. It's one chapter long. It's like 23 verses or something. Um, but it's such a profound story that lies within these scriptures. And, and, and basically, it's, it's the story of um, Paul's letter to Philemon. Philemon was uh, um, a very wealthy guy. He had, had a home church going on. And one of his servants, he had many servants working for him. One of his servants, Onesimus, stole a bunch of stuff and fled to Rome to escape and to, to, to live a life out of slavery. And so um, what ends up happening is such an incredible story is Onesimus goes to Rome, bumps into Paul by this miraculous move of God. Paul was in house arrest at the time he was arrested for preaching the gospel. Somehow he meets Onesimus. Onesimus unpackages the story of his life, why he was in Rome. Paul leads him to faith in Christ, gets him to repent of sin. And then um, in, in the relationship that Paul has with Onesimus, he discovers that he's, he's from this town where he was belonging to um, Philemon. In the church of Philemon led. He's like, I know Philemon. I've met Philemon in Ephesus and I sent him to go and plant that church. I'm going to write a letter. You need to go back and be reconciled with him and, and get things in order. And so, so Paul writes this letter to Philemon that says, Hey, listen, I've just met Onesimus. I've, I've led him to faith in Christ. I want you to welcome him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. And anything that he has taken from you, anything he has done against you, please count it to my account. I will pay for it in full so that reconciliation can take place between you and Onesimus. And so what we see here is this beautiful um, uh, mutual submission take place where, 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 where Onesimus needs to come back and submit to, to Philemon, um, but Philemon needs to receive him not as a servant but as a brother, so they mutually submit to one another. And for me, I think the whole story this is a little side note, but this whole story is just this beautiful um, picture of the gospel that 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 Philemon represents God, right? And we represent represent Onesimus that we have stolen from God, we have rebelled against God, we've lived our own life, and that Paul represents Jesus who interferes and intercepts for us and then intercedes for us to reconcile us back to God and saying, Whatever they have done, I will pay for that in full. And so Jesus paid the fullness of the cost of our sin on the cross so that we, like Onesimus, could be reconciled to um, our slave owner. And so we know we are no longer slaves to God, but we are now sons and daughters, heirs of heaven with an inheritance that awaits us. It's just this beautiful picture. And so in the, back in this story of Philemon, um, so there's this sense of mutual submission where um, Onesimus is submitted back to the household of Philemon and Philemon is submitted to Onesimus not to treat him as a slave, but as a brother. And so we see this exact principle outplayed out in Ephesians 5.21, where Paul calls us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That you and I as, as disciples of Jesus, followers of Christ, we are called to submit to one another. Not because we have to, but because of what God has done for us, we respond out of reverence to him and do that. Okay, this is where the trick gets tricky. I said at the very start that there are um, problems with this idea of submission purely because people have been abused and, and mistreated in this area. And so I want to look at the limitations of submission. Um, Paul, Paul says in um, Romans 13.1 that we should submit to governing authorities, right? So this is a principle that we need to obey the government, obey the laws of the land, and, and that is absolutely true. But then we also see in, in um, Acts chapter 16 that Paul pushes back against um, the Roman Empire because they were not doing what they were called to do. They were called to look after people and care for people, but they weren't doing that. So he starts to push back against them, to hold them to account. In, in a sense, he was being 
insubordinate because they were breaking and violating the commitments they had made to help people. And so which is it? Is it do we do we submit to authorities, Romans 13, or do we follow Paul's um, example in Acts 16 about pushing back? Well, in a sense, it's, it's kind of both. And what it boils down to is um, that, that, that freedom is meant to come from submission. And submission reach, reaches the end of its tether when it becomes destructive, when it becomes unhelpful, when it becomes oppressive, then it, it, it no longer is required. Um, uh, I remember hearing stories of leaders who would have a bunch of interns who would be under their leadership, under example, and uh, it is horrible. Like th- this leader would call their interns at four in the morning and say, "Hey, can you come into my house and wash my car? Can you mow my lawns? Can you um, sweep my driveway?" And it's not like those things couldn't wait. And it's not like those things didn't need to be done, but he specifically called them at four in the morning to test their commitment and resolve and submission to him. Now, now that's not the kind of submission that Jesus set the example for. That's not the kind of submission that Jesus would advocate for us today. And that, that's where the abuse of power comes into play, where submission becomes destructive. Because in reality, um, the leader should be calling his interns at 4 a.m. saying, Holy Spirit's woken me up. Can I come around and wash your car? Can I come around and sweep your driveway? That's how servant leadership works. It doesn't work the other way around. We become oppressive and destructive of relationships with people to get our own benefit out of that. And so a few examples that I would state where submission comes to its end of its tether is in a marriage. Like the Bible says that wives are to submit to their husbands, and that is absolutely true. But if a, wife is, if a husband is abusing her wife, then submission is no longer required. And that might be controversial. That might, you might be going, heresy. That's, but he has violated the command of husbands, lay down your wives, uh, lay down your lives for your wife as Christ laid his life down for his church. Jesus does not abuse his church. Jesus loves, cherishes, lifts up, advocates for his church. And that's exactly what a husband should do to his wife. So, so yeah, a wife is called to, to live this life of submission to her husband. But if, if he is not loving her the way that Christ loves the church, then she's not an obligation to do that. There's, there's always these exceptions that we can find. Children are called to obey their parents. But if parents are leading their children to a place of breaking the law, hey, just go steal that bar of chocolate for daddy from the supermarket. The child is no longer required to submit because submission is leading to destructive patterns of behavior and things that are not in accordance with how God would have things work. Um, Daniel is an example used earlier, but even though he was in captive in Babylon, he did not submit and surrender to worshiping and praying to these false idols because he knew that would be destructive to his walk with God, where he's called to worship one God, Yahweh, the, the Alpha and Omega. And so um, submission is not required when it violates God's way. Um, hopefully that makes it clear for you. Um, I'm just going to finish now with, in the book, um, Richard Foster looks at seven acts of submission, seven key areas where um, we can at least turn our attention, and I'm sure there's more, but we can at least turn our attention to these seven uh, areas where we can start to practice submission. The first is submission to the triune God. So uh, what that means is uh, we serve a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So we live a life in submission to what the Father would say, how the kingdom works. Listen, we submit to uh, what Jesus taught and, and exampled, and we submit to the voice of the Holy Spirit, which leads us and guides us as our comforter. 
The second is submission to the scriptures. So what does the Bible teach? We've looked a lot at the scriptures here today about what Jesus taught about submission. So it's not just good to, to, to read in theory. We've got to submit to it by living it out in reality. And uh, so submitting to scriptures, submitting to family. So we serve our family. We consider their needs above our own. We submit to our neighbors, those people around us, the, the world around us. We, we're, we're engaged with people and, and looking after them and seeing their needs is important. Uh, we submit to the church. Uh, the church is God's uh, vehicle to bring the message of the gospel to a broken and damaged world. So we serve whatever it is that the church needs um, to do in order to fulfill that role, because essentially we are the church, right? And so, so we submit to one another. Um, for the kingdom purpose of going into all the world and making disciples. Um, six, we submit to a broken, um, to the broken and despised. So we are, are like the Good Samaritan that we see the hurting, we see the marginalized, and we step in and submit ourselves to help meet their needs. And so we don't overlook the needs of people, but we are uh, intently aware of those things so that we can meet those needs. And seventh is submission to the world. So making the planet a better place, that we are good people that will submit to things like recycling and things like making sure that we look after this planet well and we're good stewards of what God has entrusted to us um, in that regard. So that's this week's discipline of submission. Um, hopefully I, I have treated this well for you and, and have treaded lightly so it doesn't bring about a sense of um, uh, you know, people being bound or downtrodden, but actually gives us a sense of freedom to not hold so tightly to everything having to be our way all the time that we can surrender those things, hold the things that probably aren't as important as we think they are pretty lightly so that the Holy Spirit can move through us to be agents of change and grace and generosity in this place. So um, I guess a couple of things to ponder and practice this week is how has this message changed your understanding of submission? Think about that this week. Has the contents of this chapter changed how you view submission, um, for good or for bad? Just think about that this week. And in the practice, um, I would love for us to remind ourselves each day to live the cross life. So Jesus died the cross death, but he also lived the cross life where he denied himself. He took up his cross. He took up his call, his mission of submission and served people. Um, so, so remind yourself each day to live the cross life where we consciously determine to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. So let that be our homework today. So that being said, um, let me pray for us as we close today. Father, I just thank you so much for your word, which is um, alive and true. It is sharper than any two-edged sword that really cuts through to the very core motivations and intentions of our heart. And today we've seen that. We've seen this discipline of submission really cut through to who we are as a person, what we value, what, how we think about ourselves and how we think about others. And Lord, I pray that you would do a real work in each and every one of us today, that we would start to see others' preferences as greater than ourselves, that we would stop, to be, stop being so self-centered and self-focused, but we would embrace self-denial, that self-denial would actually lead to a, a sense of self-fulfillment and self-actualization. Lord, that we would choose to live the kingdom way, which is in complete contrast to the ways of this world. And Lord, I pray that you would start to transform us from the inside out, that we would truly make this world a better place by being your disciple, by following after you. Lord, that we would guard our heart with this discipline from being selfish, self-focused and all about us, but it would, it would protect our heart so that we would be generous and outward focused and be all you've called us to be. Lord, would you bless us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
For more information about our online services, visit c3ch.online.church and come say hi on Facebook and Instagram.